Welcome to Working Overtime, the adorably resourceful short round to Working's intrepid Indiana Jones. I'm your host, Nate Chenen. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. So, Nate, what are we talking about today? Well, June, here at the Chenen Homestead, we recently geared up and summoned our courage and headed back to school. Oof. I have, yeah, I have two daughters, ages 10 and 12, and I also spent some quality time recently with my niece and nephew who are in preschool and kindergarten, respectively. So I have been plugged into a lot of kid energy, <laughs> and I thought we might harness that in this episode. Ooh. So, yeah, I know. Working overtime has actually touched on the balancing act of parenting while pursuing a creative practice. I listened to an episode from December of 2022. But I'd like to check out the flip side of that coin. How can we learn from the ways that children express their creativity? What are the elements of a childlike imaginative practice that can inform and deepen your work, whether you yourself are a parent gingerly stepping over a pile of Legos, (laughs) or... Maybe you've already made it across the line and raised a family, or perhaps you are someone who has never had kids and probably never will. This is going to be interesting for me because as a childless only child, I am one of those people who has very few kids in their life. So I have a lot to learn from this. Well, in some ways, June, you hit the jackpot. (laughs) And that makes you a perfect conversational partner for this episode, because I I really don't want this to be a parent talking to fellow parents. Mm -mm. But, you know, I want to take a moment to shout out a, a real role model. Last month... I flew out to Los Angeles to attend an all-star tribute and memorial service for the composer and saxophonist Wayne Shorter, who died in March at age 89. He was just an absolute giant of American music, a modern jazz icon, a real towering influence, and a source of truly endless inspiration. I wrote his obituary for the New York Times, and one thing that I made sure to mention was his constant exhortation to stay in touch with the imaginative spark that you had as a child. He said you have to protect it. Mm. Now, there's a brand new three-part documentary on Amazon Prime. It's called Wayne Shorter, Zero Gravity. And in the first part of this film, it addresses this idea quite explicitly. So I thought I'd cue up a clip from the film. The first voice that you will hear is the virtuoso electric bassist and composer and producer Marcus Miller. And the second voice belongs to trumpeter, composer, band leader Terrence Blanchard. I'd asked him, Wayne, what's the most important tool? And he said, your imagination, right? And uh, I was telling Wayne that I kept that with me. But also, as I thought about it, equally as important as your imagination is your fearlessness to respect your imagination. Art Blakey had the best comment about him I've ever heard. Art Blakey used to say he has the imagination of a child, which I find to be true because his imagination is limitless. He's a guy who is not bound by tradition at all. Okay, now I want to go watch that documentary series. It sounds amazing. But what Terence Blanchard just described, it, it feels like another way of expressing beginner's mind. You know, there are yeah. 
lots mm-hmm. of ways to approach that state, which is a little bit of a Jedi mind trick. As I understand it, you're trying to forget everything you know, all you have learned, and instead come to a project as an outsider, a blank canvas. It's almost about challenging yourself to enter a state of innocence every time you sit down to create, compose, play, whatever it is you do. Practically speaking, though, that's really, really difficult to actually Mm -hmm. do. So how did Wayne Shorter, the very definition of a virtuoso, maintain his sense of openness? You know, I think some of it was intrinsic to his character and Mm -hmm. some of it was very carefully cultivated. You know, when you mentioned Beginner's Mind, it it so happens that Wayne Shorter, like Herbie Hancock and, and some others in the jazz community, was a practicing Buddhist and was very deeply involved in his practice as a as a Buddhist. And, you know, the Buddhists, one of their key tenets is non-attachment. And you can apply that to this, you know, incredible accumulation of knowledge that Wayne had as a musician. You know, he, he went to college as a composition major. One of the last pieces that he introduced to the world was an opera, which I had the pleasure of, of seeing. And so he... He was just constantly, constantly um, exploring mm. the, you know, the various byways of of the information that he had gathered. Mm. But always, at every juncture, he was also willing himself to be open to just pure play and and to the spirit that he so fondly remembered from his own childhood, you know, and, and he grew up in a pretty, you know, industrial circumstance in the, the ironbound section of Newark. But he always talked about that time with so much fondness. You know, there was an empty lot near his house, like a weed strewn lot, <laughs> probably with some, you know, like discarded machinery in it. Yeah. And he talked about how after school every day, he and his brother would just turn that empty lot into, you know, the surface of Mars or the moon or the Sahara (laughs) Desert and, you know, just the constant reinvention and the sort of what if. And that was a a characteristic that he really carefully preserved and protected in his own work, even when he was doing something as high-minded and difficult as composing an opera. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, Wayne Shorter, excellent example of an accomplished artist refusing to put away childish things. We can clearly learn from him still. But might we also draw inspiration closer to the source? June, I am so glad you asked, because (laughs) when we come back, uh, we'll take a look at a piece of very popular children's television programming and consider the truths it has to impart. Hey, listeners. Do you have any tips or questions about the creative process? Get in touch and maybe share your advice. You can email us at working at slate.com or even better, you can call us and leave a message at 304-933-9675. That's 304-933-WORK. All right. Now back to Working Overtime. We're back. And now, (laughs) June, I am going to put you on the spot. Somewhere amidst the oh-so-sophisticated and very Catholic (laughs) cultural offerings that you imbibe, I wonder, have you ever seen an episode of Bluey?
Nate, the answer to your very flattering question is no, never. Nevertheless, I am very aware of the show. In fact, I think it might be the most praised piece of television of the last few years. Everyone who writes or tweets about it seems to absolutely unreservedly love it. Even the crabbiest critics just cannot hide their love of the show. That does seem to be true. I mean, even <laughs> Succession had a few doubters, right? Right, right. But everyone seems completely won over by by Bluey. And I, I include myself in that number. <laughs> I'll say that this is a show that on paper might seem to be a little too young for my own kids who just started fifth and eighth grades. <laughs> but my younger daughter caught the bug maybe about a year ago. And soon our entire family was watching. And what we've responded to at the service level is it's just an extremely fun and witty and well-made show that does what so little children's programming has ever managed, which is to capture something essential about childhood without dumbing it down, dressing it up, or taking anything, including itself, too seriously. Huh. Now, if you're listening right now as a parent of small children, I am not telling you anything that you don't already know. <laughs> but you may even know this simply by virtue of prior coverage at Slate. I looked this up. Last year, the Mom and Dad Are Fighting podcast devoted an episode to Bluey titled Bluey Knows Best. <laughs> and also last year at Slate.com, Philip Masiak... Philip, I apologize if, if that is not the correct pronunciation. Uh, but Philip wrote an endorsement that's also worth checking out. The headline of that piece is Why TV's Best Kids Show is Also Its Best Show About Parents. Yeah. And because I think it points us in a helpful direction, I'm going to read a quote from that piece. Bluey is a children's television show happening inside of an adult dramedy about marriage, co-parenting, and middle age starring Bluey and Bingo's parents, Bandit and Chili. As anyone who's seen any amount of the show will know, a large majority of episodes are built around some bizarre, complicated game that requires the intense involvement and deep commitment to the bit <laughs> of one or both parents. The girls make up Byzantine, frequently sadistic rules, and Bandit and Chili follow them without question or hesitation. Philip adds, Bandit and Chili are prototypically thoughtful, measured, occasionally exasperated modern parents. Episodes are filled with boundary setting and engaged parenting. But when the games begin, mom and dad are entirely at the bidding of their children. Wow. Okay. That is a very effective sell. There's a lot to like there. But I'm hearing a couple of alarm bells ringing over words like sadistic or the notion <laughs> of anyone right. being at someone else's bidding. Talk me down, Nate. Defend this beloved show. Well, you know, this is one of those maybe Stockholm Syndrome moments, <laughs> because to be a modern parent is to be involved in a somewhat sadomasochistic relationship. <laughs> you would do anything for your children. They know this on a certain level. You know, they are not above exploiting it. <laughs> so so that is part of the, the playfulness of the show. But there's also a, a, you know, a really nuanced portrayal of that dynamic, because the kids are learning from the example set by their parents, not only from their active, engaged play, but also from the moments when something gets redirected or a boundary does get put up for, you know, for good reason, you know, or when something like a death or other 
life difficulty actually enters the equation. So, you know, it, it is lots of fun and games, this show, but I think what a lot of people have responded, and certainly the critics who like this show, have responded favorably to the fact that it doesn't sugarcoat everything, you know? Wow. There's actually a lot of real life in the show. Well, maybe we should hear an example of the show's imagination in action. I consulted my girls about this, and yeah, they pointed me towards several fine episodes. I had seen them all before, but they sort of knew where to where to turn my attention. You know, there's been three seasons of the show. I think it's it's still underway, the third season. Mm. But the one that suits our purposes best, I think, is from season two. It's titled Escape. And <laughs> the storyline adheres to a meta-narrative that's basically postmodern. <laughs> Bandit and Chili, the the healer parents, are dropping the kids off at Grandma's house so they can go have a little time to themselves. And during the car ride, the whole family engages in some totally impromptu verbal one-upsmanship, imagining how the parents will manage their escape from the kids, who are absolutely determined to catch up. Okay. We go down a secret tunnel to our underground base. Which also has hammocks. Well, we go down the tunnel too. You can't. There's a manhole cover, which is locked. Well, I get an axe and chop a hole in it. It's made of metal. Your axe breaks. Hmm, what chops through metal? Uh, diamond? Bandit, don't help them. Sorry. <laughs> we use a diamond axe and chop through it. <laughs> oh, no. Wait, time to bail. We get in the car. Yeah, but a cool car. Let's go, let's go, let's go! Bluey, let's get in the Dreamhouse car. Oh, yeah. What? The Dreamhouse car. It's like a giant Dreamhouse on wheels. Yeah, it's got 11 burger shops and 20 bedrooms and 40 toilets and a spa on the balcony. So as you can hear, this is a fiendishly simple premise. Mm. And it's one that almost any parent or former child, for that matter, should be able to relate to. You know, it's like, it's like, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to do this. Well, I'm going to do this. <laughs> but crucially, this also adheres to the famous dictum at the heart of improv comedy. Yes, and, right? Yes. Yeah. This is the methodology so central to the art of improv that the Chicago guru Del Close actually named his company Yes, and Productions. And what it captures, I think, is the importance of suspending judgment as your wheels are spinning. You know, when you're not afraid of sounding totally ridiculous or going too far or what have you, you know, you can drop some real clunkers. Yeah. But maybe you also get to some interesting and inventive places. Crikey. Bluey. <laughs> Just absolutely sounds amazing. Definitely something else to add to my to-watch list. And I, I loved hearing those madly escalating flights of fancy. And that exercise reminds me of something that has come up in an art class that my partner is currently taking. Several times, the teacher has asked the class to do something experimental, where the explicit focus is on trying out new techniques rather than trying to make something that they will like. And apparently, a lot of the students are having trouble with that because mm. it's hard for them to take their eyes off the destination and just enjoy the journey. They, they don't want to make something that they're not going to love, even though you can't guarantee ever that you will love where you get to, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's such a human instinct. And, and here's where I will, speaking of improv, right? Here's a callback. 
Somewhere around the turn of this century, Wayne Shorter formed a new band, the Wayne Shorter Quartet. And this was a band with pianist, bassist, and drummer who were all from a successive generation, you know, Ah. really wonderful musicians who grew up worshiping Wayne's body of work. And rather than lead this band as the wise elder and say, well, here's how we're going to do things, Wayne urged them and, in fact, sort of pushed them to invent, you know, sort of in a whole cloth fashion, even when they were nominally playing a piece of music that was familiar to them. And it was a really fascinating thing to watch. I saw this band, I don't know, maybe a dozen times. And I can tell you, there were times when I was in a concert hall watching them sort of swirl around a theme and like, you know, everybody is kind of trying to figure out where it's going. And, and, you know, I promise you that if at any point any one of them had locked into a tune that, that yeah. people knew, you know, Wayne wrote some wonderful, iconic compositions. All they had to do was play the tune that people knew, and it would, be, would have been like massive pandemonium in the hall. <laughs> but there was a, a, a refusal to go that route. And yeah. it was almost perverse. Yes. <laughs> but it got them to this incredible depth of expression. Wow. And the, the mature life of this band, you know, I mean, there was no other group I ever saw that had the level of communication that they did. And it was really because of that insistence on not going for, you know, the easy route. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. And so back to Bluey and this episode, I think it's beautiful to see that not a single member of the Healer family in that car ever balks at any of the crazy suggestions tossed out by the others. <laughs> You're right. You know, it's, it's this madcap chase. It keeps getting madder. Even as certain rules of physics somehow manage to apply. And in that sense, it reminds me a little bit of the old Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote cartoons, <laughs> yeah. you know, but without the Looney Tunes undercurrent of nasty Darwinism. <laughs> right. Because, right. you know, crucially, while Wiley Coyote was trying to, you know, catch and eat the Roadrunner, <laughs> this here is a game being played by parents and small children. So all of that competitive escalation happens in this cocoon of love and togetherness, you know? Yeah. yeah. Everybody knows Chili and Bandit aren't really trying to escape their children or their responsibilities, but even a much-needed break turns into a springboard for play. So yeah. when they finally do drop the kids off at Grandma's, there's a really lovely turn Instead of doing their usual thing, you know, settling in for some TV on the couch, (laughs) Bluey and Bingo decide to spend their time drawing some of the outlandish scenes that they had just made up in the car. And so that moment is a reminder to anyone watching the show and really to any of us, creativity is self-perpetuating. When you cultivate it, it grows. Oh, wow. What an amazing story. I I feel really quite reclaimed, or as Bandit and Chili might say, full on, mate. Wow. (laughs) Uh, I really will start with the Australian accent. I have to say, Nate, I really do see what you're getting at, because while beginner's mind asks us to let go of established rules and preconceptions, if you can combine that with the benefits of repetition and artistic mastery, you know, the the kind of skills that all those people in the Windshorter band clearly had, well... That's kind of the creative dream, right? Right. Yeah, I think it is. You know, we're mixing up our uh, Australian television (laughs) with our American jazz, but I Mm. I will say that uh, what you just said reminds me, so many people looked to Wayne Shorter as a guru, and one of his gurus was actually Miles Davis. And one, one of the things that Wayne told me he encountered when he began playing with Miles 
was that Miles would say they would be looking at the street and they'd see a woman in high heels and she tripped on the street. And Miles would mm-hmm. say, play that. Whoa. You know, Whoa. and another yeah. thing that he said was in the studio once he told his band, I want you to play like you don't know how to play your instruments. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. so that is not a literal exhortation. Yes. It's not it's yes. not like I want you to like fumble around and and not know how to get a note out. But it's this idea of like, you have worked so hard to erect this sort of scaffolding of erudition and technique Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. knowledge and shortcuts, right? Yeah, yeah. And that has to be dismantled because all of that is sort of in you already anyway. If you can clear all of that and just get to some kind of essence and be instinctual with, you know, the thing that you do. Yes. That's actually the real stuff. I think that's like really, really profound. It's something that I I think about often. We'll be right back with some final childhood inspiration. Okay, now, June, I would like to spin the wheel in your direction. Oh. Is there a childhood talisman or tradition or even a piece of children's entertainment that has inspired you to create or cogitate differently. Okay, so I know that this is weird, but when I was a kid, the things I read about in books and fantasized about doing often involved adult careers. They were almost a form of adult cosplay. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. So let me give you a concrete example. I was always reading about school magazines. And I I would dream, and and very specifically, of writing, editing, and illustrating a school magazine. And, you know, I went to the village elementary school at the end of my street. We didn't have anything like that. (laughs) But I was constantly trying to, you know, do that, to put something together. And, And whether or not I did, I guess the key there is that it never occurred to me that I couldn't or I shouldn't do such a thing. And, you know, check it out years later decades later, here I was writing, editing and podcasting for a living. So maybe that was, you know, the thing that set that thought in motion, you know, holding on to what you dreamed about as a kid. Yeah, that that really can be very powerful. Absolutely. You know, you can look at it a, a couple of ways. Either you were getting warmed up, and, you know, <laughs> yeah. and like starting to to amass some of the skills that you now, you know, routinely deploy. Or you were manifesting this <laughs> yeah, sort of yeah. this current reality. I like both options. Yeah, yeah. But it really does show, you know, you got something generative out of play. This is getting to the heart of one thing we're talking about in this episode, which is that we often think of work and play as, you know, these diametric opposites, right? Yeah, one is serious yeah. and one is not serious. But in fact, play can be intensely serious and work can actually be pretty silly. So uh, <laughs> it's about finding like where that equilibrium lives for you and for your work. Oh, I love that. I love that. Well, that is the end of playtime. It's all the time <laughs> we have in this episode. But before we go, a reminder, please subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have ideas for things we could do better or questions you would like us to address, we would love to hear from you. You can send us an email at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you would like to support what we do, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash working plus. 
You'll get bonus content, including exclusive episodes of Decoder Ring and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll be supporting what we do right here on Working. Thanks, as always, to Kevin Bendis and our series producer, Cameron Drews, who both always find a way to make working sound like child's play. We will be back on Sunday with a brand new episode. Until then, get back to work. Work. 